actually carries missiles and there's a strike drone, as well as some loitering munitions. So it's very unclear of what all uh, kinds of drones were sent, if any were sent. It's all very much in the air, um, pun not intended. Um, and I think we should best just wait for them to actually appear in theater before starting to theorize overly. Um, we do know from the experience of some other countries that have been operating these sort of Iranian drones that they tended to be particularly unreliable. But of course, you know, things could have changed as well. Now, what I think is a lot Why more significant. Why are we not surprised? Why are we not as good as the Iranians have, uh, say, created an engineering capacity? Whenever they create weapons out of them, they fail. So I think what, what should be highlighted here, that's much more interesting than the specific drone, than any specific drone that Iran might have or might be selling or sending to Russia. The much, the more crucial thing is, right, you, you can see Iran as an example of a country that managed to adapt under a strict sanctions regime and managed to nevertheless, you know, develop new, even if not particularly good, but nevertheless develop some sort of um, technology, right, domestically. And this is important because if Russia does stay under a sanctions regime for a long time, that doesn't mean that they will be completely unable to develop new and additional technology. It just means that they'll be more limited in what they are able to develop. Um, and, you know, it's kind of ironic now that you have Iran kind of being a uh, uh, almost a mentor or an example for Russia to be following. Russia, you know, a historically um, very large, very considerable producer of weaponry around the world. Uh, the other part here is uh, we also saw, uh, for example, I think yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, uh, notes on how much the shipments of chips from China to Russia have been increasing this year compared to compared to previous years. Um, now, this is ever more the reason why um, it's crucial for the U.S. and the collective West to intervene hard, intervene fast. Uh, it's kind of, you know, get get this war over with and done with. Get Russia kicked out of Ukraine for good as soon as possible before China and Russia and Iran can kind of organize, a, you know, reorganize within themselves and between themselves. Um, one right, year, don't give them a chance to adapt. Precisely, precisely, exactly that, right? Because it doesn't take long to kind of uh, plow the fields and, and sow the seeds of uh, future problems. And the sooner you can, the sooner you can get rid of the current situation, the sooner you can kick Russia out of Ukraine. Now, the sooner you can enable Ukrainians to kick Russia out of its country, out of their country. Uh, sorry, not kick Russia out of Russia, just kick Russia out of Ukraine. Um, the the better it is because the less potential it is to you know cause problems further down the down the line right unintended consequences any sort of adaptations as you said three fox quite rightly um, that they might be able to uh, to produce in the meantime. All right, thank you, Olsen. Uh, I think it, just to add on to that um, point about specifically like back at the beginning of the Iranian drones, I think it's also important to understand the context at which the announcement was made. Uh, I, I mean, like th that clear of intelligence being both brought up and then released by the American side is definitely like strategic messaging. And it goes in line with Biden's visit to the uh, Middle East and meeting with the Saudis and the threat of, I mean, Biden made a very clear threat of going to war with Iran. Uh, and I think Iran knew that before he was even going to go there, that that was probably an agreed upon statement. And so I think they're very clearly trying to make proxy war connections ahead of time, if not really for any major tactical effect, but for a uh, demonstrative, like, this is our side, this is your side type of effect. I think that, that it's important to understand it from that lens, um, because Iran really does know right now that we're, the U.S. has kind of put its chips down. Uh, that it may be willing to go into full-out warfare. I mean, I would think that there would be a step in between that we could take, and that would be giving as much equipment as we possibly can, which we're not doing. We're giving a lot, but I feel like we could give more. And my personal thought is that, logically, that equipment just sitting somewhere, you know, it was built to fight Russians, potentially. And it has a potential now to actually fulfill that. So 
I would think it's more valuable actually fighting Russians rather than sitting there. If I may really quick, um, this, there, uh, this may not be a very popular opinion and it may be wrong, um, but it is important to understand that Russians just like us have war planners and the war planners are very analytical uh, and held to a very specific standard when right now, uh, we have seen the HIMARS be highly effective because of uh, Western-provided intelligence that's timely and accurate being provided to Ukrainian units that are able to get in position and effectively use the weapon system. That was obviously not uh, predicted by Russian forces in a timely enough manner for them to disaggregate uh, the warehouses and logistical hubs that were in place. In other words, the way the HIMARS was delivered was done in a way which made the target sets of HIMARS vulnerable to HIMARS. Uh, in, a, in, a, in a sense, uh, delaying things, as, as terrible as it is and how, and how much death and destruction and atrocity is happening, uh, there is a art to the idea that some degree of deception is necessary in order to have the right centers of gravity coalesce just in time for the right weapon system to pair to that center of gravity. Whereas if like, if the Russians knew right now that ATACMs were legitimately in play or any other advanced weapon system, any competent Russian war planner, which to be fair, it doesn't seem like there's a ton of them, but any competent Russian war planner should be able to mission plan against it versus when they don't know it's at play, they have to maximize lethality with what they have against the known threat, which usually is lesser than what the West could potentially provide. And so there is like a give and take. You can lull the enemy into a specific concentration of forces, then rapidly deploy advanced technologies, get the get them in the hands of the Ukrainians who like learn things at superhuman fucking speed, and then bam, they launch those weapons on centers of gravity before the Russians, fed by their intelligence, can freak out and disaggregate, uh, you know, the concentration of Yeah, but that's, so. that's the point where they can't. And this is the only thing which I wanted to highlight as to your argument, apart from the fact that, as a figure of speech, centers of gravity cannot coalesce, but that's a different thing. Uh, what I think you mean is that uh, their uh, focal points of their strategy cannot coalesce, but that's fine. Uh, having said this, what is more important is that <clears throat> neither do they have the planning capacity nor do they have the execution or the operations capacity for it because the Russians do lack trucking capacity for, and they do lack the, uh, the um, logistics um, troops to actually execute a distributed and truck-based uh, supply chain. They just don't have that. They've always failed at that. This has never changed. And the way their armor is being transported, for example, and the way their non-palletized ammunition transports are done, they don't lend themselves very well to what they should be doing in terms of a decentralized and distributed supplies chain. I, I mean, I totally agree. And I, and I absolutely am advocating at every possible corner for introduction of weapon systems like ATACMS right now. Uh, well, but... they're coming. They're, if, if they're not already there, which is highly likely given the advanced stages of what has been confirmed by Reznikov and the DOD, if they're not already there and, and only being nurtured, they are coming, and they are coming extremely quickly. Fair, although I guess what, what I would say is that what the Russians lack, and it's substantial, more than I ever would have thought, in wartime logistics capability and, and fires and maneuvers capability, uh, they do have a pretty good human intelligence network, there is a timeline that we have to work from, from the perspective of whenever that decision is made. I'm not saying it has been, but there is a ticking time bomb. Because where, whereas I don't expect the Russian capability to be able to actually react very appropriately, uh, I do anticipate that they will know fairly early uh, that the decision has been made uh, to, to send those weapons. Just imagine how powerlessness feels on the Russian uh, general staff level. It's a beautiful thought. John. Thanks, Axel. Yeah, I just wanted to say, I think there's a lot in um, OSINT's argument, and I think that can very, very much be lengthened straight out and applied to um, the provision of aircraft as well. Um, 
whether that be F15, F16, F18, whatever it, whatever it actually turns out to be. Um, I think the same argument very much applies. And you, you, you are likely to get the greatest effect from a new weapon system in the period immediately after it is deployed um, before the enemy has a, has a chance to adapt um, because the enemy ultimately, and, and I take your point as well, that the Russians are constrained in terms of logistically what they can actually do to try and insulate themselves from the capability of HIMARS by disaggregating their um, their ammo dumps and their uh, command centers and, and you know putting some some distance between those but I, I think with the aircraft uh, that's that's something that I don't think we will see until they are until the Ukrainians are absolutely ready to make that big offensive push um, because when that happens if there are suddenly several squadrons of modern western fighters in Ukrainian hands um, the Russians are going to have a really really hard time and and you can see the shaping that the Ukrainians are doing now to prepare for that you know they are preparing the battlefield they are hitting S300 S400 sites as priorities which makes absolute sense if they are preparing the ground for the entrance of a new weapon into theatre. So I just wanted to, to basically just to back up what Osim was saying. I think that his argument is essentially right. Um, and if you if you follow the trail of breadcrumbs of these HIMARS strikes around the place, um, you can infer that there are other things incoming in, in the not-too-distant future. I think we continue to be in agreement, all of us, on this one. And so, by the way, the timing, the timing is the key. And this is by, and this is what, for example, Yehuda has highlighted, I think, three or four times now, that on the one hand, you want to wait until everything is ready. On the other hand, there may be, and now we'll come back to sort of say uh, the words of uh, wisdom of Napoleon, you have to be ready to move when the opportunity arises. This is the critical thing. And there may be opportunity in the next couple of days and weeks. And if they don't exploit the opportunity when it is there, that could be worse. And I'm not advocating, you know, hooray and the light brigade. I'm just saying there is, you indicated this, John, earlier when, talk about, when we all spoke about Kherson. If the opportunity arises there because the front line can be pierced through, it might well be worthwhile uh, taking a few heavy-duty advancing steps there quick. So basically, quite in short, right? When you have something new, you should want to use it extensively and uh, without necessarily a prior notification so as to take the maximum advantage of it. Is that, is that right? That is the Portland, uh, Ben Hodges, uh, Yehuda, Axel and others uh, advocating using attackums in a 48-hour campaign, taking out every single uh, deep strike relevant uh, target along the front line and on every bloody airfield in proximity to the border. Yes. Yeah. So this is something that I've been on for a while. I, I think that, you know, if the attackums are there, I don't think they'll use them until they have many more launchers, you know, all the launchers currently promised at the very least already in theater. Uh, and just to be able to use them. Exactly. Just to be able to use, uh, you know, the maximum number all in, you know, all in one go uh, against the various targets. Um, would you say, Axel, that it's possible that the Gimlers thus far have really been just, you know, sweeping uh, everything within the range slowly and systematically, uh, so that then when the logistics capacities further back are hit with the TACMs, that the area up front is already, let's say, as clear of supplies as possible? I think CJ made that point very well when he said that the M270s, when in theatre, will add uh, that will add distribution capacity uh, along the whole front face. And this is interesting also in regard to the northern part and the, the axis towards Kupiansk. So when an opportunity arises, which can be of yeah massive impact, like severing the rail lines from uh, the north from. Belgorod, Kursk, and the Russian border through Kupiansk to the Izium uh, front and uh, further down to Donbass. If you can do that by means of a few dedicated strikes, then you still have to exploit that. And I think this is what uh, John also is indicating, that Ukrainians need to have the equipment to be able to exploit these things. 
And but Kupians would not be a major counteroffensive, although it would have a major impact. This may well be worthwhile having a look at as soon as the attackers are at hand, because you can you can cut off the snake, uh, the snake's multiple heads. Hydra, sorry, not Hydra. Um, John. Thank you. No, I just I just want to agree with what you're saying completely there, Axel. I mean, what I think sometimes what gets what gets lost um, in the analysis of all this by by us, by the people who aren't directly involved, um, is ultimately this isn't about retaking ground in the short term. You know, land doesn't fight; armies fight, and the, the absolute focus of the Ukrainians needs and needs to be, and I'm sure is, destroying. Russian military formations in Ukraine and rendering that force incapable of strategic action. Um, be that offensive, which they're clearly doing now. I know that's that's what all these high mass strikes are about. That's why they're going after all these depots. But then also in the de- in the defensive, you know, and being putting ourselves put them putting themselves and us helping to put them in a position where when they when they go for it the Russian ability to defend becomes dislocated. That entire front line or, or the front line where they focus, because it would be absolute madness to attack all the way along the front line. They won't do that. But that they will be able to dislocate one of the fronts. But the objective isn't so much about getting another 10 or 20 or 30 kilometers. It's about destroying the formations opposite them or cutting them off and, and forcing them to surrender. Um, yeah. Anyway, I'll leave it there. Thank you, John. Um, no, it's, I, I really always appreciate your uh, very sober and very to-the-point analysis, uh, I have to say. Tree Fox. Uh, yeah, I saw something about the Russians building up uh, troops and actually deploying missiles around, um, I forget the name of the nuclear power plant, but it's along the Dnipro. And yeah, then, it's a nuclear power plant in Nerkhodar, yeah. Right, and then potentially launching missiles across the Dnipro against, you know, whatever stupid target they have. Um, and I just wondered, like, what what can you even do against against somebody who's willing to go so low as to put troops in a nuclear power plant? Like, it just, I don't know if there's so much a question as it just kind of made me think, like, the challenges that the Ukrainians are facing are at, like, what do you, what do you do with that? These guys are monsters. So let's, let's underscore that last bit, right? That's, that's absolutely true. Uh, the rest of it, what can you do now? The good thing is, as Mark Nelson will tell you, uh, nuclear power plants, especially Soviet nuclear power plants are built very strongly. So unless you, uh, you know, keep hitting it with just overwhelming explosive force, it, it's fine. It's, it's not going to be a problem. Um, you're right. They've been using, I believe, grad rocket launchers um, to shell Nikopol. Nikopol is the city across the river from Enerhodar, pretty much, uh, from Enerhodar. I would say this is probably a task for, you know, something like a Bayraktar, maybe, something that has... A precision strike capability to take out such grand multiple rocket launchers without you know, there being undue damage around. You don't need that much explosive power either. Those you know small munitions that a Bayraktar carries um, are, are perfectly enough to to dismantle, uh, permanently demilitarize such uh, rocket launchers as well. Um, but you're, you're quite right. I mean, you know, Russians use anything as, as cover, right? They'll happily use civilians as cover. They'll happily use a nuclear power plant as cover. And the thing to highlight here probably is that the nuclear power plant is especially and primarily a cover in the sense that it would be difficult um, in, in the international press, you know, for Ukraine to say, oh, yeah, we know we, we, we went in and, and kicked them out of the nuclear power plant and were, despite that they were next to the nuclear power plant, we um, went after those grad rocket launchers anyway, right? That That's probably the difficult part. That's why it probably needs to be done pre- more precisely and more carefully and cautiously. Um, but you're, uh, you're right, my, you know. My main worry is that the Russians would blow up the power plant. Like, 
like regardless of how accurate the Ukrainian strike is, if they felt threatened in that position, my worry would be that the Russians would blow it up and then, you know, lie about it as they do. Because like I said, they're monsters. So Yeah, that's uh, that's a worry you can shelve. Nobody blows up the largest uh, nuclear power plant in uh, Eastern Europe because the winds will carry most of it uh, into Russia and straight into Moscow. So, no. Yeah, that's a, that's a very good point to highlight there. So the prevailing winds coming in from the West and know, blowing onto onto Russia anyway. Not that the Russians necessarily particularly care about their own people in the first place, right? Remember uh, their reaction thirty six years ago. Um, but I think you're you're quite right in that, Axel. And you know, also it is not that easy to blow up a nuclear power plant in the first place. It's a, it's a very That's difficult enough. task, right? That's a very very difficult task to achieve. Um, they are built in a way that makes it almost impossible to be destroyed, uh, which is on purpose, obviously. So, um, yeah, it's... Uh, right. Well, thanks for putting my mind at ease a little bit. That's what we're here for. So, actually, on the point of putting minds at ease, what were the comments from... Uh, I think it was, was it Markus Söder from the CSU that was saying some, uh, some things recently? Uh, he says things daily. Amplifying certain concerns within Germany excessively. What are you alluding to? I don't know if it was him or somebody else from the TSU um, kind of pushing for an end to war in Ukraine at all costs in, in the less good way, as in the way that it that doesn't necessarily result in a total Ukrainian victory. I mean, Soda says many, many things, but I doubt that I've heard that from him. Let me have a little quick look at his most recent utterances. Anyway, um, and just a bit of a public announcement. Uh, if you'd like to jump up and speak, if you'd uh, you know, pre- prefer a change of topic, uh, if you'd like to ask something or comment on something that you've seen with regards to Ukraine, uh, feel free to click that request button in the bottom left corner of the screen. And if you'd all be so kind as to share and retweet the space, that'd be greatly appreciated as well. Um, there's a purple stadium or possibly a white stadium, depending on if you've clicked on it recently in the bottom right corner of your screen. Um, and... Uh, you can also share the space by um, clicking either a quill or sort of an outbox-looking button at the top of the screen, uh, depending on how your screen looks like. Mic check. Loud and clear. Perfect. The stability of the space is improving. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Hope so. Uh, I, I sent you a link to, to a thing. But yeah, so, someone's noting very quickly, and I think this is something that we should uh, note for the three fox. Right. Um, there's a difference between. Uh, a nuclear power plant being destroyed that leads to a nuclear accident and a release of nuclear material into the environment or versus nuclear power plant being destroyed to the point where it's no longer particularly useful uh, or particularly easy to repair. Uh, those are two very different things. So it's very likely that any sort of um, you know, sec- secondary cooking off, say, of, of grad missiles might make a nuclear power plant kind of difficult to repair and difficult to maintain in the long run and operational um, and, and useful. That is true. But it's very unlikely that any such thing would lead to um, a, uh, no, a a nuclear incident, so to speak, right? A, a, radio, a, a release of radioactive material, uh, highly radioactive material into the atmosphere. So those are the two different things. You Basically, you don't really have to fear a meltdown or anything like that. However, uh, of course, any any damage to a nuclear power plant can lead to it's not being you know up to up to specifications for future operations anymore. Those are two very different uh, very different aspects, um, and that is indeed something to be you know cautious about. Let's say Slava Ukraini. Slava. What uh, what kind of day uh, is today? It is. Uh... Saturday. It is Saturday, the 16th of July. And uh, what happened on the 16th of July, 1990, 32 years ago today? Let me check. Can you help me? Because for me, I can, time I can is... help. I can help. It was the declaration of sovereignty uh, by the newly elected parliament of the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, which is the you know, first step to an independent Ukraine. Uh-huh. It was uh, like a year before the independence. It is good. Thank you yes, for exactly, the reminder. Exactly. 
Thank you for the reminding because uh, for me, it's time is absolutely different thing. And now um, it's good, good, good that someone still remembers. Uh, so I just wanted to chime in um, because uh, just the, today morning uh, on the Ukrainian marathon, it was uh, like an interview with the person uh, who lives in the occupied Kherson territory. And she was like a, like like you do with the special Kherson cat. Uh, also, this information. And I have a few highlights uh, because interesting how people live there because it's like a disconnection is still there. So, so it is exactly the person who lives in the occupied territory. It's very important that even though they uh, like isolated, there is uh, mobile um, communication, meaning GSM is like uh, totally closed but people still have somehow internet and some interesting things i will share uh, it's not a lot but interesting thing i would like to share because it's like uh, just this morning interesting for me and maybe will be interesting for the listeners so um what they reporting that uh, they still keep hearing hearing that uh, some explosion in the Kherson region is still happening. So it's like a something happening, but not a lot of reports in the Ukrainian side. So it's like a, for us, it's informational uh, quiet time, but something is still happening there. So what also she reported uh, that um, occupiers, Russians, uh, did uh, in theater, theater, meaning, uh, I don't remember how it's called, but uh, dramatic theater, uh, they made a weapon depot, so maybe future target, and really, really, very well, uh, like a looking for them, like a, a protection with the people, they pr really good protection of this building, theater, and uh, it was also around the question of, around the money, so, it's very bad, really bad situation with the money. So uh, what was reported that um, internet banking is not working. So it's completely like uh, uh, done because as I constantly try to mention that in free Ukraine, uh, that uh, we have internet banking and most of Ukrainians use it because it's re really convenient for me. Like I don't like uh, cash but a lot of Ukrainians same as me and uh, what was reported that still some Ukrainians uh, cash is uh, like a banks uh, provide but now is more limitation and since this past week it was a lot a lot of the explosion provided cotton explosion provided from the Ukrainian side to the Kherson occupied uh, occupiers now it's even now stricted so it's like a in a day you can get only 500 hryvnia it's really like a 15 like bucks 17 dollars something like yes that, yeah. yes it's like a 15 bucks dollars as it's not enough it's like a, a milk a, a bread and nothing it's like a you gonna staying in the queue for a few hours just to get this $15 Ukrainian agreement. So it's like a, they saying the situation is getting harder since this explosions with the high Mars. So uh, like occupiers doing some changes. Yes. And did she do, did she say anything about people evacuating the population uh, dropping steeply? Uh, yes, yes. It was also a question. I comment to this, and uh, what she said, it got stricter. Meaning, uh, for people, it was uh, a lot of them. <clears throat> uh, they watching now clo closer. Do not allowing to uh, people to move uh, freely. So uh, what uh, she was noted that people mostly after three, 3 p.m. sitting at home. So there is like a uh, ghost town that's after 3 p.m like a, in the middle of the day right like a 3 3 p.m and no one on the streets 
it's really it's like a new information because I remember what we talked with the uh, special hair song cut and she said he said that uh, like a people uh, moving around like a normal link but uh, she said that 3 p.m. and that's it all everyone sits at home because no one like a maybe from afraid of the strikes maybe afraid of the uh, occupiers but what what she noticed that uh, people do not want to interact with the uh, occupiers because uh, new new law and uh, no now enforce it uh, on the people of the occupied territory of Kherson and Oblast that uh, if you somehow show you protest against the occupiers meaning Russia you're gonna be prosecuted it's like I enforce it uh, uh, with this Russian law the, like a say similar with the, like a, you if you say the no net like no war it's similar to this like a, they uh, now it's like enforcing from today and um, another thing that, that they mentioned uh, it's my favorite uh, thing uh, the information spreading meaning Ukrainian information spreading so she was contacting it's where it was uh, like a transmitted to this Ukrainian uh, marathon and she said that uh, we still have con connection with the Ukrainian side and what she what she does it's like a, she uh, goes to the internet collect information what is happening like on, on the Ukrainian side and they then sit in the homes and during I think uh, through the telegram like a closed uh, only to this we have this OSB OSBB meaning like a uh, people that uh, belong to some building meaning uh, they are they know each other they know who this lives and they share between each other news from the Ukrainian side we, because it's like a, uh, they uh, they have the smart smartphone and they uh, no need for like a for uh, internet hello, hello. yes Christian, please, when you come on onto the panel, please put your hand up and wait your turn, please, okay? There's a heart with a plus in the bottom right corner for you. Slavo Kadini. Hello, I'm Slavo. And uh, what okay, she said... Good, that... good. Okay, sorry, sorry, Christian, sorry. Yes, just uh, put yourself on mute and then raise your hand. There's a At the bottom right, there is the heart button, where if you can uh, select the context menu, mm -hmm. you will see okay. there's a possibility to send messages. Raise your hand and after the current... Okay, good, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, I will continue uh, that uh, also this is, was actually instruction uh, on our, on this informational space, uh, uh, Ukrainian informational space, that how to connect with the people when there is no internet. Meaning if you have a smartphone, you still can communicate with each other through Bluetooth or um, other meanings. Meaning there is a chat that you can just uh, message each other uh, on short distances, so it's like a 100 meters, like a, a communication is working. So what she does is uh, she have uh, like ability to go through the internet. She collect information from info informational spaces, uh, like a legitimate uh, verified, and then she start sharing with the whole building. It's like a big building, but she just on each floor they just sharing with this chat so it's it's good for me to hear because uh, they still this still keeping this connection because russians still keeping this like a, a dome informational dome that uh, just to constantly remind like spreading the lies like that ukrainian side for, forgot about them and ukrainian is trying to like a spread true information so it was interesting for me thank you um, so they, they stay in the in their apartment blocks, right? But they don't necessarily they, they, they still talk to people elsewhere in the other apartments in the apartment blocks, they kinda of share information, etc. but they don't leave the apartment blocks. That's kind of Yes, yes, uh, it's absolutely right. They don't need to uh, see each other, they don't need to uh, close uh, encounter, but through the connection through the smartphone. Um, they can uh, exchange uh, uh, information 
through the channels, like so to be informed what is really happening. Because what she noted, she say exactly a lot of people just closed. Uh, ah, also, uh, what uh, what they do in Russia, they started to print uh, local um, uh, paper, and they spreading this paper uh, uh, completely Russian propaganda that the Ukrainian side forgot about them that uh, Russia uh, already won. Is they just spreading this? And uh, they trying this method, but Ukrainians are smart. They like uh, providing, exchanging, and, and like uh, keeping the faith to the Ukrainian side. Because what the uh, Ukraine Marathon also the, does this, they providing information to this side. So it's like important to keep them informed. Thank you. Thank you, Slava Kalini. Thanks for uh, thanks for that reporting. You know, ho hopefully uh, the city of Kherson will. And the Kherson Oblast at large will not be occupied for a lot longer still. And yes, uh, what is they noticing that it's like uh, they they also preparing for this uh, future referendum. They like are trying to uh, like uh, enforce this uh, thinking that it's not that's like uh, they never gonna be free. That they always be Russian Russian side. But uh, Ukrainians uh, keep keep them know that it's not gonna last forever. So it's good. It's good. Thank, Thank you, Slava Kalini. Um, Slava Kalini, actually, I'm curious on on the marathon. Have been have they been talking a lot about Dnipro last night? Because there seems to be very little uh, reporting about what happened in Dnipro. Very little new, and and that makes me, you know, fear for the worst, really. Uh, maybe you are right on this because uh, for me it's like uh, also not a lot of the inf information. Maybe they uh, like uh, made this big frame of silence, like uh, not uh, giving a lot of the information. What I heard is that they noted th three dead, uh, several injured, and that's it. Like uh, there was not a lot of the talk, not a lot of the communication with the officials. Like uh, you. Uh, uh, provided, but uh, it was a lot of the information, not a lot, but it was like in detail that uh, some wo some woman it's like a ninety seven percent is uh, um, damaged to the uh, skin, born skin, and they have a very bad situation. And other also like a, more than ninety percent of the uh, body was born, burned. So it's like a the situation looks really bad. So it's like a, now it's not, nothing de in details provided, but it was noted. So it's like a, what is happened, but it looks like it's still in the process, not just investigating what is happened. A lot of the, um, what also noted that a lot of the, uh, um, how to say, when they shoot the rocket, they this debris uh, collecting to, for the future investigation. So it's f also this was noted, but uh, there is was no connection with the officials. So looks like they have a lot of their hands. So like a busy, busy. So thank you. If, if there if there will be some news, uh, I keep to monitor, trying to monitor it. So I will try to provide. So thank you, thank you Slava. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think that's that's why they're keeping it uh, quiet for now, and until they have a, a complete, comprehensive picture of uh, of exactly of exactly what happened uh, last night. It was uh, my understanding is that due to the sheer volume of missiles that struck Dnipro and the various different parts uh, of the city that were struck as well, it made it very difficult for the emergency services to respond and respond well, especially. Uh, after the second uh, set of strikes came in later on, and uh, no, it makes it makes sense. Um, Axel, um, I, I guess you've you've not you've not come around to uh, to, to to checking that out yet. I did, um, I did. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mr. Brenner has misinterpreted the interview in a rather tendentious uh, way. It's quite stunning. I mean, Mr. Hoover um, is, uh, shall we say? He is a state sec he is the secretary general to Mark Söder. That's true. Uh, Mr. Huber uh, follows in the great tradition of those 
who speak often enough in riddles and in, uh, shall we say, um, not necessarily as specific terms as helpful. However, um, let me just pull this back up so that we can go through this because it's it's quite interesting. Uh, Thorsten Brenner tries to uh, depict Mr. Huber's statement as something which is akin to li uh, lightening the load of sanctions, which is not true. He says, uh, what Mr. Huber says actually is that we have to keep up the pressure against Russia. Uh, however, we also see that these sanctions do hit us. We will have shortages in winter. That's absolutely true, completely correct. But he states, keep up the sanctions. And then uh, comes the question, uh, the question from the interview by a, a Mr. Christian Deutschlander was, well, therefore, would one have to come, would one potentially be in a situation where one would have to question the sanctions? And then Mr. Huber replies to this, we support the Ukraine um, out of conviction. However, we also have to look at our own population. Peace, sorry, no, um, freezing for peace is not a suitable and solid concept. What we see in the moment is weapons help Ukraine faster than sanctions. There, this government, he means the federal government, has to add on to. He hasn't said anything about sanctions being relieved. What he has said is that weapons work more better than sanctions and faster. I'd say Mr. Huber is onto something and he was criticizing the Bundesregierung and Mr. Bre Torsten Brenner, who himself pr who prides himself as being the co-founder and director of the Global Public Policy Institute, is making it a tententious uh, approach. And I think he should question his own reading capacity, given the fact that he is a German national. And why would he portray Mr. Huber and Mr. Zöder as being um, on the wrong side of history when Mr. Zöder is the one who has commissioned actually the TÜV, which is the, so to say, the, uh, techni uh, the technical certification board in Germany, TÜV Süd, meaning the southern part of the technical certification board and testing, to uh, assess as to how both ESAR 2 as well as Grundrenningen could support the network and how many millions of households in Germany could be supported by means of electricity from there. I think uh, Mr. Brenner is just making a statement uh, to target Mr. Zöder, which is completely and utterly bereft of any facts at this point in time. But there you go. Thank you, Mr. Brenner. You have failed. Sit down. Next. Thank you, Axel. See, this is why I wanted to ask you about it, because... Um... I didn't want to spread the uh, misinformation in this respect. Oh, Austin, you just... Well, Mr. Just... Brenner should probably more... more of, rather than writing opinion pieces for all sorts of newspapers, he should probably concentrate a little bit further, a bit more detail on what actually is being done. And if he has an agenda to follow by himself, he should declare his agenda or should come onto the space and debate us. We'll be happy to have him. We have deconstructed the agenda of many a blue check mark here already. So we have, so we have... Uh... Thank you, Axel. I was just going to ask Austin uh, some stuff, but Austin just dropped. Oh, well, uh, maybe Austin will join Sorry, I just, oh, I just came back. Yeah, it crashed on me. I, I missed anything oh, yes, that, the last that like, 30 seconds. Yeah. No, it's okay. We're, we're talking about uh, German politics for a bit. But Austin, I was, I was just going to ask you, actually, um, you know, what, what, what parts of what's going on in Ukraine have you been paying particular attention to over the past uh, couple of weeks since we last spoke, you and I, I think? Uh, <laughs> that's a somewhat hard question to answer. Um, in general, uh, it's, it's just been the, uh, Russian priorities for targeting, uh, uh across and um, in, in relation to shipments. So trying to baseline what, what they're doing in relation to the movement from the West. So you're saying sort of, uh, where Russians have been targeting logistics, that the Ukrainians have and the like, right? Um, yeah, but but also like more the scale of uh, anticipating HIMARS movement and implementation timelines. Uh, what type of counter targeting would have been employed? Which, to be frankly honest, I, I haven't been super surprised. Like I had low expectations for how the Russians would respond. I thought that they would probably respond in mass cruise missile volleys. Um, and likely on targets of non-strategic or tactical opportunity and probably ones that they could plausibly deny. Uh, but 
would have mass effect on, or at least from their perspective, on uh, morale, which I think is somewhat in alignment with what we've seen, but probably a little bit less than what I anticipated. And indeed, they were primarily striking civilian targets, right? Primarily what we saw as a response from Russians was nothing but terror bombings of uh, city centers instead of from the sheer inability of being able to do anything about the high-rise themselves. Yeah, I anticipate they would they would take uh, a mixture of industrial sites and sites that they had, had basically through their propaganda wings already established as being quote unquote uh, you know NATO centers or or some type of center of power, and then they would either attack or uh, attack intentionally and miss by way of uh, lack of precision. And say like you know, hey, we're targeting this factory, but we hit the shopping mall because it was right next to it. Like that, that type of thing. All, all those things seem to play into the playbook. And maybe one thing to to point out, right? In in Vinica, three missiles struck. All three missiles struck effectively the same building. Um, th- this kind of puts to puts to none uh, their occasional excuses of, uh, well, you know, we were shooting for one thing and just happened to hit another. Yeah, I think there's a significant delta between, like, a, a significant difference between um, what the Russians say and obviously through objective data what their intent was. That being said, like, they're pretty good at knowing how messaging works domestically. And as much as I hate it, it, like, it works. You know, like, like you could have, you could sink five missiles into one spot at one minute intervals, making it very obviously pre-targeted and you could still sell it to the domestic populace that it was a, a missed coordinate. And, and really, you know, maybe, maybe this is a, this is a good way of putting it. And I think you're right. The one thing that they're very good at is their messaging for their domestic audience, right? Their, their inward propaganda. That That's the one thing that they're pretty good at. Um, and indeed, they they not just you know know what to say, but they also just know that if they say seventeen different things about everything they do, different segments of the domestic populace are just going to pick up on the you know pick and choose which ones they believe, and uh, they're all going to be quite satisfied with it. Um, I think something to highlight though is what we've also seen after their terror bombings, the first Vinica and then Dnipro, which were clearly aimed at civilian targets, right? A city square in the middle of the day, what is it going to be? You know, that that's why there were so many kids around. That's why, there, you know, there's a hospital next door, a maternity hospital, no less. Um, you, you've, you've also seen a lot of, uh, the, the let's say, the truth that the Russians themselves know revealing itself and a lot of reveling by the Russian populace in uh, the civilian targets that were that were struck and and the deaths caused uh, by the Russian military strikes on those civilian targets as well, right? So you know it's true that there is Russian messaging for domestic purposes that's uh, kind of um, exculpatory, aimed at being exculpatory, uh, but but really it almost seems as that that is really fundamentally aimed at maybe a minority at the home and many people abroad, uh, tankies. And you know, to, to put it lightly, uh, whereas the population within Russia seems to be perfectly aware and very happy with the genocide that the Russian military is committing in Ukraine. Olsen, mic check. Slava Green. Hello, I'm Slava. I think Olsen is talking and doesn't know that he that we can't hear it. And it's the interesting fact that while you did this conclusion, I was posting this same thing that I just read. And exactly the same conclusion that they just doing a few things. They hitting innocent people, and they just using this like a fake victory for this the, uh, Russian people to explain it like a big victory. They something hit, but they gonna explain justify like a some military uh, weaponry or something. But they they doing doing this because they have no any victory. They have nothing to be like uh, to put to the to the people, and they doing this thing just for nothing. Thank you. Yeah, also I think you had an audio drop uh, in the middle there earlier. Yeah, that I I don't know what's going on with Twitter. It's been weird for me lately. 
But I, I guess I was trying to say is like like the Russian war aims. I think from the very beginning were uh, based in a tiered system of objectives, and that's giving them a lot of credit. But I like worst case analysis makes sense. Like if, if worst case is they actually thought this out, and you know there one or two objective layers of you know taking key and all these other things failed, and they fell back to the lower level objectives. Uh, I think in in general, they probably always planned on conforming the domestic audience to be prepared for what is effectively effectively brutalism. And and the pessimistic side of me also says they probably prepared the war in a way uh, that they may be able to lure or uh, lure Ukrainians basically back into the nation. Because like it, it's one like the war starts, it's easy to say, hey, like let's flee the nation temporarily. Okay, the war stabilizes, we come back, and then they intensify again, and it makes people really question if the nation can stabilize. That that's like a tail oldest time type of thing. And as you said, right, it's really about Russians' inability uh, that was uh, to to actually hit, say, the high and hit other. You know, Ukrainian artillery targets, um, so they take it out on uh, they take it out on, on civilians. Yeah, the the ability to hit something like HIMARS is you're really getting well within the tactical limitations of the Russian military because, like, they're f- the fundamental problem. Everyone loves to talk artillery and missiles and rockets and all that, but really, mo- the most important thing in this war is intelligence and knowing where a thing is and being able to develop coordinates. Like I could have the most hyper accurate missile in the world, but if I don't know uh, exactly where a thing is at an exactly precise time, it's really not that good. And especially if that asset can move and a high Mars can shoot and scoot, as we say, pretty fast. Uh, and Russian intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance or ISR is like extremely lackluster compared to the United States or, or even most of NATO. Um, and so once you introduce things like high Mars into the system, the non-Soviet technology, non-Eastern Bloc technology, that it was designed to basically counter Eastern Bloc and Soviet uh, intelligence uh, timelines, it, it, it really does start to change the cycle because, frankly, it, it starts to become very difficult to destroy, way more difficult than e- even the uh, U- uh, United States supplied artillery. And this is also why so many Russian military bloggers and the like are really losing it, right? Because A, the Heimers got in, B, nothing could have been done to prevent that from happening, and C, they were told how... Uh, their own anti-air defenses are going to somehow miraculously shoot all those gimmers out of the sky. And I think Portland was saying that he's seen now 26 videos of uh, Russian anti-air defenses trying to shoot gimmers out of the sky and zero successes. Yeah, it it wouldn't surprise me if they purpose-built them. They know that the 